Hey, Don. Hello, Zach. This week, you sent me a short story by a very famous sci-fi author named Isaac Asimov. And this guy, I think, wrote a major trilogy of books called the Foundation Trilogy, which your favorite billionaire, Elon Musk, when he launched one of his Teslas into space, they also put a copy of this man's book into the car. So it is uh, now, you know, going around the galaxy and hopefully it's not going to crash into Earth at some point. But it's a really interesting short story that you sent. And here's the best paragraph I read. On April 12th, 2117, the field modulator brake valve in the door belonging to Mrs. Richard Hanshaw depolarized for reasons unknown. As a result, Mrs. Hanshaw's day was completely upset and her son, Richard Jr., first developed his strange neuroses. It was not the type of thing you would find listed as a neuroses in the usual textbooks, and certainly young Richard behaved, in most respects, just as a well-brought-up 12-year-old in prosperous circumstances ought to behave. And yet, from April 12th on, Richard Hanshaw Jr. could only with regret ever persuade himself to go through a door. And Don, the rest of the story is basically about the idea that in the future, if you go out your front door, you just automatically get beamed to wherever you want to go. I kind of looked at it like Star Trek. You kind of type in your coordinates, you go to another place. And in this story, we have a young man whose door is broken, and therefore his mom has to open up another door. And basically, he just goes outside. And it causes all of these problems. His mom is very worried about his kid going outside. It looks like we have a future society where people just travel from door to door. They never go outside anymore. It's this foreign, weird world. And it's a short story just about people that go outside or have to go outside because their door is broken and sort of what happens. And what did you think about the book? And please help me with more of the story plot line in case I'm missing some key ideas that maybe people might want to hear. So this book was given to me by Russ Stowers, actually loaned. He is another teacher at Lake Orion High School and a very wise man. And he told me, these are the three stories you should really read. And this is the one that I thought was most interesting. So yes, people go outside. And then ultimately this boy gets sent to a psychologist because he keeps going outside and his mom can't figure out why he's going outside. And the neighbors ask questions about why is he outside? And the psychologist himself hasn't been outside in like 10 years because they just use the door, quote unquote, to go from place to place, to beam, to China, to San Francisco, to wherever. And all this time, they're just never being out in the beautiful sunshine. And it seems to be seen as unwise or unseemly or irrational to be out in the sunlight. And it was just like, what is this new society and how do we go? And the other real fascination here is the idea that if you're out in the real world, you're getting dirty and you have to burn all your belongings and start with new ones. And yeah, it's just so interesting. The story is called It's Such a Beautiful Day. It was published back in 1955. One of the things I really enjoy about reading science fiction is it's usually somebody who's making a prediction about the future. And this person's sort of commentary is, okay, if all of a sudden we can just beam ourselves from one place to another, is it possible that humans will never go outside again? Obviously, this is written almost 75 years ago. And while I still think I'm not sure if we're ever going to see this sort of beam me up, Scotty sort of technology, I do think this guy has made some very interesting comments about going outside and people's impressions of going outside. 
I feel like, especially during this pandemic and in the age of the screen, we find more and more reasons to stay inside, to all of a sudden have this character who really has never been outside sort of enjoy the wind, to enjoy the sunlight, to sort of embrace dirt and germs. It's kind of interesting because I think there's a lot that we can see in ourselves in this. Would you agree? Absolutely. And I think the best paragraph I read in this was the description of the wind against his skin and the hair on his arms and the sunlight and how it feels. And in a time when I read this, which was in the middle of the winter and during a pandemic where we're not outside very much at all, it just seemed like a revelation. The idea too, and this is the other thing that was kind of interesting is, so the boy ends up having to go outside to go to school because their door is broken. Mom is very upset. She calls a repairman and the repairman is somebody who has to go outside every once in a while. And so he kind of looks at her like, well, you can go outside. And what's crazy is besides the door that will beam you to wherever you want to go, there's the sort of emergency door that just goes outside, which is right next to it. And I think there's sort of an irony in the idea that you could go outside whenever you want. It's not like the outdoors is tainted or anything like that. It's just that people have convinced themselves that dirt and germ is bad. But meanwhile, you have this boy's mother who starts to worry about her son because her son is like coming home late and looking for excuses to walk outside. And now she's petrified and she's terrified. And just a couple of weeks ago with our wives, we had a podcast about overparenting, right? And the relentless relentlessness of parenting. And you could kind of see where in 1955, this author has sort of predicted how parents are going to start overthinking everything for their kids. Only this time going outside is the bad thing and is making her really nervous. Yeah, absolutely. And it's something that when he does use the super door, I'll call it, to beam from one place to another, she's so happy and relaxed. Then he goes back to using the outside door to walk through the outside air, and she's disenchanted. And it then eventually it comes out that he only uses the beaming door when it's raining. But it's after he got caught in the rain, and he was like, what is this? And the mom was like, oh, yeah, I read about the weather. Not that I'd experienced the weather, but she had read about the weather because weather is something you read about, you don't experience, which again takes you to this world where there are little actual real world experiences and everything's so insulated. No, it makes me think of this whole movement towards VR, right? And everybody's going to go have a virtual reality experience where you're going to go walk through the desert or, I don't know, go and uh, swing on vines in a jungle or something like that when... You can actually go do that, right? You can actually still go outside and experience those things. But for some reason, we find it more interesting to do it via a screen that's, you know, implanted on your face. And it's almost like that's the point where people in the future have just only heard about the theory of the weather. Or at some point, the young boy goes out with his psychologist outside and I believe they see a river or a creek or something and they start referencing their geography book and how they'd never actually seen a river before, but they'd heard of the theory and that clearly what they were seeing was matching up with what they'd read in a book. Yeah, and it's just wild to him. And the psychologist ultimately wants to go back inside to finish the session, but the boy says, no, no, we're just getting started out here. It makes me feel like the wonder that I watched with my kids when they were little, just wandering around through the woods, finding things and doing things. I mean, that was the most exciting thing in the world. Ultimately, it was very fun. And therefore, how accurate would you say this guy kind of gets it? I get it. He's still talking about 100 years from now. But at the same time, 
you know, I just think about, I just kept thinking about all of our students and all the young people that we know, maybe even our kids who have probably spent maybe more in, more time indoors than we would like over the last year in a climate controlled room with great Wi-Fi, maybe even some food delivery and Netflix and any entertainment on demand. And the idea that I think some kids have really maybe pushed away from outside. I was thinking about my youngest child. We asked her, hey, would you like to do softball or maybe soccer this spring or summer? No, too hot. I don't like sports where I get hot. And I just kind of kept thinking about this story a little bit of, you know, it's now very easy to avoid the outdoors in so many ways. Well, she may not be alone there. My mom likes to work out, but once she stops, starts sweating, she stops right away because she doesn't want to get too sweaty. So that doesn't necessarily mean, might be a personality thing. But no, you're right about that. And I was reading recently about um, VR college tours because people want to look around the colleges. They want to see if they want to go there. But right now, a lot of college campuses are closed. They don't want outsiders there because, and they don't want anybody without a mask at all. And how do you really experience this college campus? Well, a VR tour will take you through the dorm, will take you inside, it'll take you, and with the, you don't have to wear all contact tracing, wearing a mask, you can really VR tour Yale or whatever. And so I thought, wow, I just, I just can't see myself there. I view, we have an Oculus, I've done a little VR thing my son set me up with, but it's not the same as being there and smelling and feeling and the different temperatures. It's, it's so wild. But again, that's what this story alludes to is that, the one boy seems to really understand the difference for being outside rather than just using the computer. And I like what you said about experiencing it is different than, you know, seeing it through the lens of a, of a screen. I've told you about when I lived in Cairo, Egypt, and until you're there kind of smelling the pollution and like the burnt air and you're seeing the pizza hut, like right next to the pyramids, you kind of just don't really get it. And you, it's really hard to see it on a screen you know, the idea that the kid embraces going outside. And it kind of made me wonder of, okay, before the age of the screens and, and, and Wi-Fi and all of that, there was more outside time because that was something to do, right? And now all of a sudden, it's like we found arguably a, a better replacement or a substitute or something that gives you a bigger dopamine hit in the brain. And therefore, it's easier to want to be on the screen than to go outside. But a part of me wondered, well, do you think the solution to today's youth, and this obviously would mean if you value going outside, is we should just lock them indoors, give them more screens, force them just to, you know, <laughs> binge on screens and literally make them so sick of screens and indoors and unnatural light that maybe they want to go outside again. And maybe that could be the solution to everything. What do you think? When I taught psychology, um, there was the concept of the overjustification effect, and that if you pay somebody for doing something that they enjoy doing, they'll actually enjoy it less. And the evidence for this was uh, abundant, but one of them was that high school athletes enjoy their sports far more than college athletes who are playing for a scholarship. Well, a few that are playing for a scholarship, or and much less than the the pro athletes really don't enjoy their sport at all because their job. And if you get paid to do something, you enjoy it as much. And I remember th saying to my AP psychology class that my belief and goal with my children was if they really like video games, I'd start paying them to play it and paying them by the hour and by and so that they feel like they're doing it only for the money and then they therefore hate it. I don't know if this would work or backfire because I haven't done the experiment in real life because turns out I don't view my children as experimental subjects yet. 
Maybe. <laughs> Growth mindset. Someday I will. But as of now, my children are fantastic. Once screen time is forced to end, then they want to be outside and doing things. It's just a matter of making that break. Right. Making that break. And I think that's one of the things we've seen over the pandemic is it's kind of hard to make the break when maybe your alternatives are, are not a lot. Right. And I, I also kind of was thinking a lot about the pandemic and how do you think in some ways over the last year, because people have been so uncertain about where you can go, what activities are safe, maybe what families you feel comfortable having your kid hang out with because you don't know who they're hanging out with. Do you think in some ways we as adults have kind of maybe given an unwritten message to kids that outside and exploring in other places is bad and unsafe. Just like we see with this mom where she's just freaking out every time her son's got a little bit of dust on him. I kind of wonder if we've maybe given that message, even though we didn't intend to. What do you think? I think that is out there. I mean, I never felt that outside was that much of a danger because early on the virus was it's fairly clear that the virus didn't spread outside very much. It's mostly indoors. Um, so that, yeah, the outside has always been a safe place. And after school, my kids are in elementary school. They'd play on the playground for an hour in the woods and with their friends. And I'd freeze my butt off often in the winter watching them. But I was so happy they're doing things outside. And so, yeah, I don't think that happened in our household. I wonder about others. They're unsure about going out. But you do hit on a point that I wanted to really explore on this, which was the obsession with dirt and germs. And when this boy comes in from outside, his mom wants him to immediately take a shower and burn his clothes because his clothes were disposable at this point, apparently. And the idea of dirt and germs is one that I see a lot of. If you've been on a playground in the last 10 years, you've seen a lot of hand sanitizer dished out all the time. You've seen a lot of washing hands. And not that this is bad because it prevents flu and infectious diseases, but I think it is dished out to a point that there is an obsession or a it's detrimental to our, to, to our kids that they are constantly thinking they have to be clean, clean, clean. Whereas often I have two very dirty children that I have to urge to wash, wash, wash. No, that's a really good point as well. In fact, I remember it, it felt like it was about five or 10 years ago when the hand sanitizer movement was really big in our society. And then I kind of felt like there was a little bit of a dip in it as people, I remember started reading about like, look, some germs are good. It's what keeps your immune system going. It's what strengthens it. It's what you know helps you kind of fight off other stuff. So you do want some germs. You do want every once in a while to put a dirty hand in your mouth or whatever. And therefore, careful what we wish for with all of this hand sanitizer. And then obviously now in the age of COVID, we're back to Clorox wiping everything and you know trying to keep things more sanitary. But you're right. This guy in 1955, clearly something must have been in his mind that at some point in the future, we were really going to be pushing against dirt. And I guess you could say that we, we definitely are nowadays. Nobody says, well, hey, I want my kid to get a little bit dirty, dirty and stuff like that anymore. We say it. We're trying to get them to get clean at the end of the night. But yes, um, that is the the situation in many areas. And I don't think I think the obsession is one that really permeates, especially highly educated, probably suburban university type cultures, where ultimately it's not there isn't that big of a risk. And getting that sick from the dirt isn't that big a risk. And dirty kids don't get many allergies, or so it seems. So I, I'm cool with dirt. Well, right. But dirt and wind and any weather that makes you feel even a, a tiny bit uncomfortable, that's outdoors, right? It's a little bit unpredictable. One of the things that I just sort of thought very interesting about this particular story is 
everybody's been living indoors so long that it's almost like any sort of variation in what's comfortable is just like this horrifying idea. And since we've been back to school full time, one of the things we've been doing with students is taking them outside for some mask breaks and just letting them kind of run around. And it's been fascinating to watch kids that I teach, which are mostly about 12 years old, some are 11 or some are 13, but we've gone outside and the number of kids that just start running with just these bursts of energy and they've started playing like tag and like things that you're like, oh my God, they're kids again. They're, they're just kids and they're like, there's this joy. And so the first couple of days, there was a ton of that. And now what I've noticed though is Mr. Bill, it's really cold out today. Like, could we just go back in? And I'm like, well, hey guys, we've only been out for two minutes. Like I thought we'd maybe just stay out for a nice 10 minutes here before we go back in, but it's so cold. I can't do it. Or it's just so windy. And I've noticed now that the slightest variations of temperature, even though it's just going to be a 10 minute break, kids are already like, ah, I just rather go back in. I can't, I can't fight it. I can't hack it. And it makes me realize that outdoors for some people is, is real friction. It, it really forces you to, I guess, have to fight against the elements a little bit. A couple thoughts came to mind. I have two middle schoolers and you obviously teach in middle school. That's not far removed from elementary school where they did have recess and they did have monkey bars. And we were just talking to a parent the other day. They're saying, why doesn't the middle school have a playground or at least some area to go run around and do something? Because the kids are kind of in that bridge gap. Certainly at high school, they don't walk out and bolt around very much, but that is an area that's there. Also, the outside does separate because there's some kids that spend a lot of time outside and they're up for anything. And climbing mountains or exploring is just par for the course. And they do that a lot. And there's other kids that are told, like the people in the story, that you should be inside and the climate controlled and what's appropriate and uh, advisable. I mean, I've put my kids outside in the most extreme weather, down to minus 30 wind chill and up to 100 degrees, and they just do their thing and deal with it. But a lot of people don't see that as acceptable. What are you doing? What are you thinking with your kids out there so cold? Well, they're fine. I think that's it. Uh, right. You know, I mean, we, I got kids that come to school in, in mesh shorts, right? And it's the dead of January and they're fine. They seem, they seem comfortable with it and they're okay. I think you make a really good point about middle school. And that's one of the things that myself and a lot of teachers talk about is the need for recess time still or outdoors time. And once again, when I talked a little bit earlier about just the idea that do we as a society sort of send a hidden message to kids that outdoors is bad and I guess in some ways we do when we don't give kids a lot of time to go outdoors. One thing that this pandemic is sort of kind of showing us, especially as we do mask breaks, is maybe we as teachers just need to take the kids outside a little more often and let them just have 10 minutes. I've been amazed at taking the kids outside for 10 minutes, letting them run, let them just kind of walk around. And what a mental reset you can just feel when we get back in the classroom. I feel like the kids are all ready to move on to the next subject or move on to the next activity. They don't feel nearly as jittery in their seats and stuff like that. And, you know, again, as you were saying, these kids are barely removed from elementary school. And it's a real hard just cut from you used to at least get to go outside once a day. And now you never get to go outside. And I think we're going to be looking at trying to make more opportunities for that. If anything, I'm always bummed when I look at my own kids they get to go outside, I think, for 20, 25 minutes a day, and that's it. That's their only recess. I think I had three recesses when I was a kid. 
I think you did, because I know I did, morning, lunch, and afternoon. And yeah, the recess is pretty limited, and there's not a lot of space. My younger son was uh, is a monkey bar king, and he'd be out there on the monkey bars the entire time. And there was some limits on what you could do and what you couldn't do in the monkey bars. Then after school, he'd go out there and skip double bars or triple bars because you can't do it at recess. I feel like there needs to be less limits on recess. That said, we I don't know. I do know at least four kids that have broken bones on the playground equipment. So maybe we do. I don't know. Um, yeah, absolutely. I'm not taking the high school kids out at this point. And some of them rock two $300 Nikes that are brand new and white. I'm not sure I'd get a lot of positivity if I took them out there that often. That's true. The kids themselves would almost rebel. And again, that's my point is I can only imagine how many of them would complain to you about the weather or a slight variation in temperature and stuff like that. Now, another part of this article that was interesting was that they have a robot. I think it's called Mechanic. And the robot was bringing the correct clothes and answering questions about the weather. And that almost seems like Surrey or like, hey, Google, these speaker type processing devices. And although it's a step further and then it's pulling out the clothes, it's pretty close. I thought that would really remind me of a pretty, pretty accurate prediction. Yeah. No, again, short story was written in 1955 for him to kind of think of personal assistance, you know, in robotics and to kind of foresee that maybe that is something that's going to happen. I think that's also a very interesting prediction. And still the guy's got a hundred years before he makes it. If anything, here was the thing that I thought was really kind of fascinating is the kid does go to school and we're not given a full description of school, but the school that is described in 2117 seems exactly like the school that's described in 1955 and then the school that's described today in 2021. It seems like there's still a classroom. There's about 25 kids in it. Kids are still being called on. They're taking things like English composition. There's things like study hall. The only thing that was kind of weird was they were teaching kids how to pronounce English words in a mass average accent and intonation. So that was sort of a weird thing of apparently kids aren't pronouncing things correctly anymore or they want everybody to talk the same. But what kind of blew me away is that this guy, in making a prediction about people not going outside and the idea of personal robots, he basically doesn't say anything special about education. And Don, I guess what I wondered is, is it possible that just it's impossible to reimagine education on a large scale? <laughs> Coming from an author who has a tremendous imagination, is creating all these worlds, and yet education is exactly the same. Yeah, maybe we got it right. Maybe they got it right in the 1920s and 30s, and outside of uh, changing the segregated gender different models, now it's, well, it's probably fairly still segregated because of the way our population is. But still, it hasn't changed a tremendous amount. And it doesn't look like it's going to change. I really thought this pandemic was our opportunity to make big changes. But it seems like everybody in the administration and the society as a whole wants to race back to the status quo of, 19, of 2018. And we don't want to make big changes. If only he had an asterisk with a footnote that said, dear reader, the reason why education 150 years from now is still the same is because there's a bunch of interest groups and there's a bunch of stakeholders that while they want it to be different, they don't want to give up their little fiefdom of it. And therefore, it's just still the same. 
And you and I are guilty of that as well. As union members, we want to certainly keep the compensation model that rewards old age and experience for no real good data-based reason. We don't want that to change because we're at the top of the compensation schedule and trying to provide for our families. And we don't want to change how many hours we teach or the summer. I don't think you do. I know I don't. And so we're just a stick in the mud like everybody else. And if anything, this pandemic where you and I have now experienced multiple different types of schedules, right? We've taught online this year. We've taught hybrid where we teach half the kids and then the other half the kids are supposedly doing their work online and now we're all back to normal. (laughs) It's almost like in one year though, we've gotten a chance to sample every sort of educational model there kind of is or has been proposed as wouldn't this be better And I kind of would say, you know what? No, none of these models to me are better than what we were doing. Now you can still critique the model that we've been using, but I would say that none of these are a real improvement. Now I would use the caveat of on a large scale. I still think for every individual kid, any one of these models has probably been successful, but on the average and on the whole, I don't think they're working for everyone, which to me, I guess goes to say, if you want to reimagine schools Do you really just need to be thinking at a very local and small individual student to classroom level, but you could never scale it up to be much different? Well, you could scale it up to diminishing returns. I think that there are individual students that want to be online and that do well in that environment in the short run. And let me emphasize that short run because we don't know what that means in the long run. Do they have the people skills to form a career where they can interact with others? Or do they choose a career where they don't interact with people at all? Do they have beneficial and positive relationships with their children, a spouse? Or is that even necessary? Maybe I'm wrong in assuming that that's part of what makes life fulfilling. I don't know what the long run is. So yeah, maybe we do offer the opportunity for online individual programs where they don't come to school at all and the kids prosper and do well and score well. And we still don't know the long run. Not that we're tracking the long run for any student. And although I think we care, we don't put any effort into it, but I don't know what the effects are. It's going to be up for the sociologists in the next 10, 15 years. You know, I think you just hit on exactly what the model should be. And that is offer every one of these models that we've tried this year and let students and their families select the model they'd like But the part that needs to come with it, I think, is accountability on the student's part for performance and the time to be able to give that sort of feedback. I'm not sure if we're set up to be able to manage that in a way that people can be told whether or not they're succeeding with that model, if you know what I'm saying. Well, yeah, and we'd have to probably measure more than just grades. Totally. I, I, I mean, if anything, I would throw the grades out. And at this point, it would just be, here's what you're producing. And let me give you some feedback on what you're producing. And for a lot of kids, it's you're not producing anything. So this is clearly, this clearly, this model is not working for you. Absolutely. The other thing I I thought a lot about when I was reading this story, and again, this idea of going outside and how in the future, it looks like going outside is a very rare occurrence, at least especially for the upper class of society that this young man was a part of. It made me think of when I was in college, I took this geography of place course and it was a really interesting course, but one of the assignments I had to have was I had to walk through an area in downtown Kalamazoo. Part of it was 
in sort of urban blight. And then another part of it, you know, was in sort of urban renewal. And I had to just walk through it and just keep a journal of everything that I saw, I smelled, I felt, and I was thinking as I just sort of walked. And then I had to drive through that exact same set of neighborhoods and keep a journal then. And it was really fascinating when you start to compare the experience of walking through a place and then driving through a place. They're very public and private acts, respectively. When you're walking, it's amazing what you notice. And it's amazing what you start to think of, man, we got to fix this or wow, they're doing a great job with this. Whereas when you're driving, you're going so fast, you don't notice anything except thinking about where you're trying to get to. It kind of made me just think about the idea of if you ever want to change society or if you ever want to like fix things, don't you have to go out and experience them? In the future, it seems like it's all about avoiding experiencing anything, just getting to the next place. Well, yeah, I think that's a way that our society is looking at a lot of things. Try to move as quickly as you can from one place to another without really experiencing it. We love to go camping. We love to spend time in the outdoors. And it really, there's a feeling to that. Being in the altitude, being in the different weather, going to different places feels different and smells different, like you said. And that's something that's not countered by virtual reality, by the world in this story, or in general, the way that... People are sometimes speed through society without even really looking. To me, again, I always just go by, I can't believe this guy wrote it this long ago and sort of was bringing up just sort of these very relevant issues that we're dealing with. And again, yes, we don't have a beam me up Scotty sort of door coordinates, but the idea of outside, the idea of experiencing reality is right there. And it's something that I think is very relevant. And I think this is a story that I can see why your friend Russ really wanted to have other people think about it. I, I think it's really relevant to this day. Absolutely. And actually encountering the world, whether it's just the outside natural world or a culture. I know people that go to all-inclusive resorts in Jamaica, and I always tell them, when you're going on that bus from the airport to the all-inclusive resort, make sure you look out the windows because there's a lot of poverty and there's a lot happening. And make sure you encounter that because you're not going to encounter that real world of Jamaica in the all-inclusive resort where you don't leave until your flight home. And ultimately, that's the Jamaica I'm really interested in. I want to see the way people live. I want to eat their food. I'm sure they're having interesting discussions and eating interesting foods, something but the all-inclusive resort doesn't really have. And that's what I want to experience. And I think that that's what this boy's experiencing is what the nuances that he notices outside as opposed to what somebody else would notice outside. And I think that's what I really enjoy about going outside and doing things with my wife and families. We all see something different and it's a special experience. That's a really good analogy there of people that go to the Caribbean. And I've had friends go, I've never gone, who have all talked about the worst part is getting from the airport to your all-inclusive resort where you never have to leave, right? Again, imagine you're on that bus and you're speeding through, and I'm sure people are looking out the windows, but imagine if we made them walk from the airport to their all-inclusive resort. Absolutely. And that's the, that's the sight you see. And that's what it would be like to experience that. When we were in Belize, we went to the Mayan ruins of Tikal in Guatemala, and it included about an hour-long bus ride. And I was looking out, and there's people washing clothes on rocks. And I remember thinking, wow, I thought that was only a National Geographic thing. I can't imagine people are still washing their clothes on rocks, but of course they were. And how much more interesting would that experience be? As opposed to, well, the Mayan ruins were cool, but to really see these people and be in their culture and eat their food and smell what they smell, and it would be so much more interesting 
than just this more sanitized version. While I was reading this, I was thinking about your favorite ancient Greek allegory, which was written by Plato, and it's the allegory of the cave. And it made me wonder if the author actually maybe stole part of his story from Plato's allegory. And basically what Plato kind of set up was this thought experiment where he said, imagine you have prisoners who are chained in a cave and all they can do is stare at the wall. They can't move their heads. All they can see is the wall. And then imagine that behind them is a fire and somebody is just making hand gestures. And therefore all they're seeing is the shadows. And all those people know are the shadows of reality. That's all they can see is just these shadows. And that's what they believe the world is. And then all of a sudden, one of these prisoners leaves the cave, they're able to escape, and they go out and they see the world, they feel the wind, they feel the temperatures, they they see the warmth of the sun. And they're like, Oh, my God, everything that we thought we knew was wrong. All we saw were just shadows on a, on a cave wall. This is a great, big, beautiful world that's out there. And then Plato says, so imagine this prisoner who, who escapes goes back and, and tries to start telling all of these people about what he saw and his experiences. At the same time, he's been blinded by the light. And therefore, all the people who are chained and staring at the wall, they look at him and they said, you've been blinded by the sun. You can't see anymore. We don't want to go. We don't want to escape. <laughs> we don't want that reality. It looks horrible out there. We'll just stay and look at the cave. And it's kind of this haunting sort of vision. But do you think there's truth to that, right? The mom sees the dirt and she doesn't want to go out there, even though her son is saying, no, it's it's interesting out there, right? Or I've, I've got my Netflix reel. I've got my video games. I, I'd rather just stay here. It looks kind of cold out there. It looks a little uncomfortable. How much do you think Plato got it right? Well, Plato got a lot of things right. I heard, you know, he is my favorite philosopher. However, I think different people appreciate different things. There's many people that don't want to experience different things. I remember talking to my parents' friend who was moving to Hong Kong with her husband and going to live there because his job had moved there. And I said, that's fantastic. Well, I would love to live in Hong Kong for a few years and really experience that culture. And they were not interested at all. They weren't happy about it in any way, shape, or form because they liked their nice little place to stay in Ann Arbor. And a lot of people are like that. They don't want to move to a different part of the country or a different part of the world. So I'm not sure that we're better people that want to experience these things, but we're just different people. And some people don't want to explore. They don't want to see what it feels like to sleep on the ground in Western Montana and experience a freezing night. It's, I mean, it's different things for different people. So not necessarily it's the time. It might be the difference between the people. That's a really good point. I like what you're saying about value systems. And I think that in a way we have to be careful here because maybe you don't value the outside. And are you really doing anything wrong if you're not going outside, right? And I think sometimes if you're somebody who's pro outdoors or anti screens, I could see where you start to want to judge others for maybe their desire to not do those things. And that's really important. And I think in some ways, this story definitely seems to put judgment or a value on being outdoors is important. I guess though, in one way is if you never try something or you refuse to try and experience something, how do you know you don't like it? There are just some people don't want. I teach with a woman who has never been on a plane and she's 10 years older than I am. 
And it's not for lack of money, it doesn't seem. It's just that's not what she wants to do. She drives to Florida. She drives up north. That's that's what she enjoys. And she knows what she enjoys. And I was like, okay, well, that's just a different way to live. And I don't think we can condemn them. I'm actually happy for them that they've found something that they enjoy. Personally, I want to explore more things and find if there's other things I enjoy more or less. But it's just different strokes for different folks. Your favorite progressive era president, Theodore Roosevelt, wrote the strenuous life speech. And essentially in it, he just talked about how it's effort, it's hardship, it's fighting through. That's what makes individuals and nations great is having pushback and working through it. And clearly when you're living in a world where it's always comfort and not taking yourself out of your comfort zone, maybe you don't grow as much. Do you think TR is onto something here? Or would you say, no, it should still always be challenged by choice? No, I like TR a lot. I think that we grow tremendously from the things that are challenging in our lives. And I'm a fan of Teddy Roosevelt. I need to put that biography on the next to read list after I finish Winston Churchill. Then I guess my final question for you is, how accurate do you think he got it? In terms of like, if you had to rank America right now, and if you had to say it's adults, it's youth, in terms of our ability to embrace the struggle or to take the easy way out, right? Our, our ability to go outdoors or just take the warp door. How would you rank us? Where do you see us? I think for the most part, it's pretty, well, it's really hard because no national parks have never seen more people going and they're super, super busy with tourists that are trying to explore, as is true of the sites that you and I have both seen in Europe separately, that these tourist sites are just crowded. So there are a lot of people out there. But at the same time, the door, the metaphorical door is technology, which is predictably really, really engaging. Why is engaging? Well, the appearance that screens are bigger, better than ever before. They interface fluidly. The content is exponentially greater and there's exponential choice in what content you consume. So predictably, that's going to have more people watching than you and I looking at a grainy TV with an antenna and a handle trying to see what's happening in the basketball game. Of course, people are going to consume it more. But yet there are more people in national parks. So it is hard to really put a one-fits-size-all prediction. I would agree. I I think uh, I was just talking with my mother. Kayak sales are through the roof. You can't even get one if you want to go outdoors and do that. Or bicycles are hard to find right now. Clearly, there's a demand for people to, to want to get out there. Although, ironically, most of the people that go outside will take their phone and just take a selfie of themselves, right? (laughs) Yeah, well, they want to share and brag that they did so. But I'm going with uh, your philosophy. I won't show you your pictures if you won't show me mine. I appreciate that. Do you think, though, that the screen or the phone is really the metaphor for the portal or the door, right? It's so easy just to go into that world and instead to look up around you Do you like that metaphor or do you think that's uh, too simplistic? No, I think that's pretty accurate. Fair enough. And hey, I'm guilty of going into my portal all the time to check out LeBron James news and stuff like that. I hope his ankle's okay. Me too. 
Well, Don, it's been a pleasure talking with you this week. And, and thank you again, Russ Stowers, for s- sending this story to us. This was amazing. Um, I will post a link in our show notes to be able to find it. Usually, if you look for complete stories or short stories of Isaac Asimov, you can find it. I'll see if I can find a link online too, but it's really good. I recommend everybody read it. Absolutely. Wild. And I'm not a big science fiction person, but I found this really took hold of me. It's time for you to join the revolution, Don. There's a lot of good stuff out there in sci-fi. I'm barely keeping up with what I'm trying to read. Well, Don, it's a pleasure talking to you. We'll talk with you next week. Absolutely. Have a good one. Take care.